Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics 13, The Problem of Evil. Now that we've established the existence of God, the historicity of Christ's resurrection, and the Bible's veracity, we come to objections commonly brought against Christianity. And what we're going to do here is cover three. The first is the problem of evil, the second is related to science and the Bible, and then last of all, sexual ethics. So to start with, the problem of evil. This is the chief classical question posed to Christians throughout the eons, and it's often formulated like this. How can you believe in God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? Thankfully, the Bible provides a range of answers to that question, though it's not always clear which answer applies to a given situation. In what follows, I address I address the logical argument against God's existence before going on to cover six major reasons why God allows suffering, including the fall of the devil, God's judgments, using suffering for good, a lack of faith, and time and chance. Lastly, I explore some of what the scriptures teach us about dealing with suffering. Somehow, the original recording of this lecture was lost. As a result, I re-recorded it last week with my home Bible fellowship. Therefore, the style is a little different, and certainly the names of the students are different, but hopefully this will fit in just fine with the rest of this class. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics number 13, The Problem of Evil. What I'm talking about here is the problem of evil, and what I want to start by saying is that this is a serious problem, and first of all, I don't have it all figured out, so we might be able to have some discussion at the end here if there's time. The problem of evil is the most serious problem in the world. It is also the one serious objection to the existence of God. This is Peter Kreeft, a philosopher at Boston College. More people have abandoned their faith because of the problem of evil than for any other reason. It is certainly the greatest test of faith, the greatest temptation to unbelief, and it's not just an intellectual objection. We feel it, we live it. So, what is the problem of evil? The problem of evil is simply this, why does God allow so much pain and suffering in our world to exist? Or, to say it a different way, how can there be a God, or at least a good God, if there is so much evil in the world? So, what I want to do with you is cover these three things here. I want to show how the problem of evil fails to disprove God's existence. Number two, give some reasons why God allows suffering. And then last of all, talk about how to deal with suffering ourselves when we go through tough times. And we all go through tough times in our lives, so that should be helpful. All right, so... If there is a God, then why is there so much pain and suffering? That's a simple way to say the question. The formal way to say it, or semi-formal way to say it, is that premise one, God is all-loving. Premise two, God is all-powerful. Premise three, evil exists. Therefore, 
there is no God. So that's a typical formulation that atheists use to disprove God's existence. This is probably the most powerful argument that anti-theists have to establish their position. And there are some suggested solutions. For example, some people say that God's not all-loving. So you can deny that, that God's all-loving. So if God's all-powerful, but he doesn't care about evil, then there's no problem. You can still have, but that would be an evil God, right? So that's kind of a problem. Or you can get rid of all-powerful and say, well, God's all-loving. He really wishes to stop all evil, but he just can't. He can't be everywhere at the same time, or maybe he's limited in some other way. That's the strategy that Harold Kushner used. Uh, He wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, back in 1981. His son was born with this rare aging disorder where he aged very rapidly and died very young. It's very tragic. And Harold Kushner, it was a rabbi. And so he's working through the Old Testament and trying to figure this out. He, He said, he concluded, God does not reach down to interrupt the workings of laws of nature to protect the righteous from harm. This is a second area of our world which causes bad things to happen to good people. And God does not cause it and cannot stop it. So Kushner believes that God's not all powerful and he can't stop it. So this is a little bit about the problem, but just to to offer a very simple way of approaching it, I want to adjust this right here by saying God is all loving, God is all powerful, evil, I would say just evil still exists, okay? And then the conclusion from that would not be that there's no God, but the conclusion from that would be God has not yet destroyed all evil. So I think If God has some sort of reason, and this is just dealing with the logical perspective of the proof here, but if there is some reason, and we don't have to know what it is, but if God has some reason to allow evil for a period of time, then this fails because it does not disprove God's existence. It would just prove that God has not yet destroyed evil. So when we see something, we should look for its source. If we see evil, we should look for a source of evil, not the absence of a good source. If there's evil, then there's an ultimate source of evil. Therefore, the devil exists. That's the logical conclusion of the existence of evil. As far as God, if there is good, because there's a lot of good in our world too, right? Then there's an ultimate source of good. Therefore, God exists. So, From a Christian or biblical point of view, we can say that God exists and the devil exists, good exists and evil exists. Of course, we don't believe, as Christians, we don't believe that God and the devil are equal and opposite. They're definitely opposite or opposing, certainly. But God is way more, you know, the, the devil is not a universe maker. So he's got some serious limitations. There's this barbershop story. It's kind of dumb, but I want to read it to you. And it's, nobody even knows who wrote it, but it's just a fun little parable. It goes like this. A man went into a barber shop to have his hair and his beard cut as always. He started to have a good conversation with the barber who attended him. They talked about so many things and various subjects. Suddenly, they touched the subject of God. The barber said, look, man, I don't believe that God exists as you say. Why do you say that? Asked the client. Well, it's so easy. You just have to go out in the street to realize that God does not exist. Oh, tell me, if God existed, would there be so many sick people? Would there be abandoned children? If God existed, there would be no suffering, nor pain. I can't think of a loving God who permits all of these things. The client stopped for a moment thinking, but he didn't want to respond so as to cause an argument. And you never argue with the barber while he's doing the job. 
could go badly for you. The barber finished his job and the client went out of the shop. Just after he left the barber shop, he saw a man in the street with long hair and a beard. It seems that it had been a long time since he had his hair cut and he looked so untidy. Then the client again entered the barber shop and he said to the barber, you know what? Barbers do not exist. How can you say they don't exist? Asked the barber. Well, I am here and I am a barber. No, the client exclaimed. They don't exist because if they did, there would be no people with long hair and beard like that man who walks in the street. Ah, uh, barbers do exist. What happens is that people do not come to me. Exactly, affirmed the client. That's the point. God does exist. What happens is people don't go to him and do not look for him. That's why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. So this is obviously an oversimplified solution to the problem of evil. But it does get at something interesting, which I've just been trying to explain, that when you see something, you should look for a source of it rather than the absence of the opposite, right? And so if you see people with long hair and beards, you should not think barbers don't exist, right? That's absurd. So that kind of shows a flaw in that reasoning. Now I want to move on to point number two, which is look at really the main thing a lot of us like to focus on when something bad happens, which is why? That's the question that we ask, isn't it? We want to say, well, why does God allow suffering? And so I have uh, scoured the Bible. There's probably more than what I found, but I found six reasons, six biblical reasons why God allows suffering. And the first one, as you might expect, goes back to the original fall in Genesis, right? Seven times in chapter one of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter one, God says everything is good. Right? Six times. And then the seventh time, God says everything is very good. So seven times in chapter one, God says everything is good. Right? So our universe, when God made it, was perfect. It was good. In that original world, without human suffering and death, it says God was walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, there's, there's an intimacy there that was present in the beginning. And of course, you know what happened, right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's there in the garden so that they have choice whether or not to trust God, that he really does have their best interests at heart, or if he is holding them back. Because that's what the serpent says. The serpent says, God knows that if you eat from the fruit of this tree, you'll be like God's, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's holding you back. He doesn't, he's not trying to help you here. He's holding you from reaching your full human potential. And so what do they do? They reach for that fruit and that initial act of rebellion is what we call the fall, right? And the fall includes that act of disobedience, but also includes the curses that result. So everything is cursed, all the players, right? The man, the woman, the serpent, they're all cursed and the ground too. So like everything is cursed. And really that's what's wrong with the world from a biblical point of view, right? From chapter three, we see What's wrong with the world is that rebellion resulted in a curse, a very comprehensive set of curses, so that things tend to spiral downwards, certainly from an evil or suffering perspective. So this is a little quote from Tim Keller. He says, there are forces of darkness that were unleashed when we turned away from God. He's talking about Adam and Eve. When we rebelled against God, the fabric of this world began to unravel. We unleash those forces. Isn't that fascinating? So there is a sense in which the devil is the bad guy, but there's also a sense in which Adam and Eve could have said, no, we don't believe you. You are not as trustworthy as our maker. And so we're going we're gonna to say no to you. 
but they didn't. The result of all the evil in the world then starts from those two places, from that initial encounter, at least from a biblical perspective. So what do we see? We see that sin spirals increasingly downward. Uh, go ahead and flip over to Romans chapter 8. Sin spirals increasingly downward, right? The first two children, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. He murders his own brother because he's jealous because God accepts the one sacrifice, not the other. And then we see that the next generation, another person kills another person, and they say, well, if, if it's seven times on Cain, then 70 times on Lamech, right? And then it spirals down worse and worse and worse until by chapter six of the book, every thought of everyone's heart is only evil continually, right? And that's the flood, which is a pan-genocide, except for those eight people that survive. But they get off the boat, and what happens? Do they build an altar? Yes. Do they give God glory? Yes. Do they give a thanks offering to God for saving their lives? Yes. But then they get drunk. You know what I mean? And then you have all kinds of dysfunction starting up again, right? And so the world is definitely tarnished. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that idea of the spread of sin, starting from one place and then spreading out. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So that's the Apostle Paul. And what is he saying here? He's saying, look, there are sufferings. We do go through sufferings as Christians, but it's not worth comparing to how great it's going to be. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you see that? There's a connection between creation and, and, and the people of God, between the rocks and the humans. <laughs> From a biblical point of view, what does it say? The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation itself is sort of like stressed out and whacked out and in chaos and waiting, longing for the time when resurrection happens, because when resurrection happens to the people, creation itself is healed as well. And that's what the next verse says there. Uh, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So creation itself has problems. We have landslides. We have hurricanes. We have tsunamis. We have tornadoes, right? There, there is a dysfunction in creation itself. And that shows up in lightning bolts and all kinds of other ways, right? In uh, disease and, and sickness and viruses. Whatever kind of evil we're talking about, whether we're talking about human evil, accidents, natural disasters, biological, acts of God, right? Judgment of God, or the devil and demons. Like all of this we can trace back to that singular moment in the beginning when our first parents said, no to God, and they've rebelled against him. And everything else is a consequence of that. That is a major part of the biblical perspective on why God allows suffering, is that there is this initial decision that people made, and God is sort of like provisionally allowed creation to get out of whack for a time. But there's hope that it's going to be straightened out. So then the second of the six reasons is the devil causes evil. Right? So I want to show you a scripture on that. 
It's going to be kind of quick, so I'm just going to pull up my own Bible here. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. This might be familiar to many of you. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan here in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is called the God of this world, or the Greek word for that is this age. What does that mean? Think about that for a moment. It means that to some extent, God is not reigning. God is not in charge. God is not calling the shots. And you see that also at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 11, 15 to 18, that seven, seven trumpet sounds and everyone starts rejoicing and they shout out to God, worthy are you to take your power and you have begun to reign. That's what it says there. And so right now, in some sense, Satan is very much involved. And is Satan's character good? No. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the devil is a major part of the answer to the question, why is there evil? Why did this happen? A lot of times it happens because of demonic influences, right? And a lot of times it can happen just because of the results of the fall trickling down all these centuries later. So that's the first two. Let me, I'll write these down for you. Six reasons for suffering. All right. The first one was, what was it? The fall. The second one was... The devil slash demons. Okay. The, the example on this one right here with the devil and demons in Scripture is from what book? Let's see if you can guess what I'm thinking of. Job. Job, right? Because in Job, you're let in in the beginning that the devil's behind the whole situation. You know what's crazy? You read through all of the book of Job. It's like 42 chapters. Crazy long. Very difficult. Poetry complicated stuff deep waters there it's not the shallow end of the the biblical pool right but you if you if you manage to push off and get all the way through job to the other end of it and finish the book you'll discover that job never finds out about the devil he never finds out about the conversation in the beginning that the devil was really behind it that the devil said to god the only reason why job cares about you or that job's faithful to you is because you take care of him he doesn't serve you for nothing that was Satan's accusation against Job. In the Job never finds out about that, right? Job is just the whole time is like, I didn't do it. That's like the whole book of Job. I didn't do it. And his friend, yeah, you did. You did something. Tell us what you did. And so that's the, the whole book of Job. And then he encounters God, and God's like, hey, it's a bit more complicated, buddy, right? Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? You know, I will ask of you, Job, and you will instruct me. And then God just... It has like a million questions. but uh, So that's a, an example of how the devil and demons could play out. Number three reason for suffering is God's judgments. There are times where God judges people. You think of the city of Sodom. The angel said in Sodom in Genesis chapter 19, verse 13, For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so, yeah, it's the angels that actually carried it out, but God, or Yahweh there, is the one who sent the angels to destroy the city. Why is that? Because of, because of the outcry against his people has become great, because of the sin, because of the way that the people were behaving in that city. There is a sense that sin puts us in a difficult situation with respect to God, right? This is R.C. Sproul. He writes, 
We soon forget that with our first sin, we have forfeited all rights to the gift of life. That I am drawing breath this morning is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. If he allows a tower to fall on my head this afternoon, I cannot claim injustice. Uh, it's really interesting take on the situation from his book, The Holiness of God. He tells a story about how he's a, a teacher. We looked at it the other night in fellowship. You remember that? And he's grading the papers and 250 students and maybe like 20 of them or whatever, don't hand them in late. And he says, well, I said you had to hand it in on time or else you're going to get an F. And, the, and the, they, they make up excuses. And he says, all right, all right, I'll give you an extension. And then the second term paper comes due months later, and it's even worse. Now, 50 students handed in late, and they're not even that worried. They're just like, oh, you know, we're so sorry. And then he relents a second time. And then when the final papers do, what happens? Again. Like 100 students don't hand it in. And they're not even nervous. They're just like, oh, we'll get to that as soon as we can, Professor. A couple days, we'll get it into you. No problem. And then he says, all right. And he starts calling names. And he writes down an F. And they, and they shriek and they carry on, right? And they're, they're, I can't believe you're giving me an F. And he's like, oh, yeah, you want, you want fairness? You want justice? They're like, yeah, we want fairness. And they say, well, you handed your last paper in late too. F for that one as well. And then they got real quiet, right? Because we don't really want fairness. We want to be the exception. We want mercy. That's what we want. We want mercy. And so we get so used to mercy that when we see justice and we see judgment, we freak out. But this perspective might help us a little. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So with our first sin, we forfeited life. We've earned death with that sin. And so God doesn't owe you to like keep you alive day after day after day. Every day that you're alive, Wake up and say, thank you, God. You know, it's a, it's a gift. Every day is a gift, right? There's no hidden arrangement anywhere in the, in the, the Bible or in anywhere else that God says he owes you 80 years. He doesn't. He doesn't owe us anything, right? He's our creator. It's like, it's like a, a kid complaining against his parents. Then the next one is using suffering for good. And this is kind of an interesting one because it comes down to this one verse in Romans 8.28. And there are two versions here. You have the NASB and the ESV I've written, written out for you on, on this. And, and there's a significant difference between them. And these are both modern, very literal, reputable standard translations. If you don't know if they're standard, they have an S and the S means standard. So, so there. Um, and they're totally different. On this verse, the NASB says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And then the ESV says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? So, on the one hand, you have all things work together for good. And on the other, you have God causing all things to work together for good. Right? And the, the theological difference here, or the practical difference, is that Let's say some bad thing happens to Sarah Jane. She gets in a car accident and it's not her fault. You know, it's just like some random thing happens and she gets in a car accident. Now, will we say that all things work together for good? Now, what if that car accident doesn't end up resulting in a good in her life? What if instead of coming to appreciate the fragility of life and being thankful for a car 
like a year down the line because she was without a car for a period and she suffered. What if instead she contracts some bizarre disease and dies as a result of the car accident, which I hope would never happen, Sarah Jane. If that happened, then this verse would fail, right? Because that car accident wouldn't be for her good, would it? But on this side of it, all things to work together for good. That's God taking whatever things happen and using them for good. Right? So I, I feel like there is a, a, a difference there between the two. And that good does not necessarily relate to the person the victim, the person in the situation. It might be for somebody else, right? But I'm sure you've all experienced this in your life. Think over times that you suffered in the past, times when you had to really knuckle down and get through something. And ask yourself the question today, would you want to change that about yourself? And some of those things maybe you, you would like to change. You, you would say, well, I, I wish I didn't have to go through that. And other things you would say, well, that was really difficult, but I'm glad I went through it because it made me who I am today and I wouldn't change it. You know, and so we, we do have a sense that there are certain things that we go through, certain things we suffer that are actually building our character. And so, look, I'm not saying every, every last thing God causes to happen. Every, every time you have a cold, who has a cold? Leah has a cold. Every time you have a cold, I'm not saying like God struck you with that cold, right? I think that's too strong of a reading of this. But God can work through that thing, that cold or whatever, for good in some way, right? And the obvious one is just appreciate, like when you don't have the cold anymore, you appreciate breathing, right? <laughs> and you, you can be more uh, grateful, What's the opposite? The opposite is a spoiled brat. The opposite is that rich kid that gets everything they want and they become a moral monster. We don't want that. The example I think of with this one is Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? He suffered so much. Think about how much he suffered. Sold into slavery by his brothers. Brought to a foreign land. Had to learn a foreign language rose up through the ranks as a slave. And then what ended up happening? He ended up getting falsely accused and locked in prison with no hope of escape. And then in prison, he's there for years, right? And the baker and the butler come down and they have these dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams and then their, their dreams both come true. And yet they forgot Joseph and he's still in the prison for all that time, right? And then he finally gets out. And when, when Joseph gets out of the prison, it's a crucible for building his character. So much so that immediately when Pharaoh approaches him and asks, asks him for help, he says, God will give you the answer that you seek. God will give you the interpretation to your dream. Just like that. No hesitation. His life is on the line. No hesitation. He's so locked in that suffering had had built him this character, right? And what ended up happening? Joseph gets into power. Pharaoh says, well, this guy's good. We need to put him in charge. And the power doesn't corrupt Joseph. So often power corrupts people, doesn't it? And it doesn't corrupt Joseph. Why? Because God had worked with him through all these situations in his life. Once he finally got into power, he could handle it without it going to his head. Even, like, and, the, and the example of that is with his brothers, right? I mean, he does mess with them a little bit. But in, in the end, they're, they're terrified. As soon as their father dies, as soon as Jacob dies, the brothers are terrified of Joseph. And they go to him and they're like, 
So dad's not here to protect us anymore. And we figure you probably want to get even now. And Joseph says, guys, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what he says to his brothers. He's like, let it go. Right? So he's not corrupted. Now that he's in a position to do something about it, he's not corrupted by that evil. So that's the example of evil working good in our lives. God can take that evil and work it for good if we let him. If we don't let him, it can make us just bitter, right? And you don't want to be bitter. Think about how many people ran to God, how the churches were so full in uh, the wake of September 11th, 2001, when that happened. Death can be a wake-up call for the living, can't it? This is an interesting verse, Ecclesiastes 7.2. If you're looking for interesting verses, go to Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes 7.2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Look, you, you should take it to heart. You go to the house of mourning, you go to a funeral rather than a wedding. If you go to a funeral, you say to yourself, this is the end of all humans, right? This is the end of mankind, and you take it to heart. Right? So there's, there's a kind of a benefit of experiencing suffering ourselves or seeing suffering as someone else to remind us of our, our own limitations. And then number five reason for why God allows suffering is that sometimes it's because of a lack of faith. Take a look at Mark chapter 9. I want to read this together with you. This is going to be Mark 9, 17. Do you guys remember that incident where they brought the, it's like an epileptic seizure type situation. They brought this demonized boy to Jesus. It was actually his father. And Jesus wasn't there. So they brought him to the disciples. Jesus was actually up on the mountain of transfiguration with his face glowing and a vision of the kingdom. Just incredible, right? But the disciples were down at the bottom. And so they brought him to the disciples and the disciples tried to heal the kid. And they couldn't do it. Look at this. Uh, this is Mark 9, 17. We read, And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and he convulsed, and it was just like chaos, right? And, and Jesus says, well, how long has it been like this? And he's like, for a long time. Since childhood, verse 22, he's often cast him in the fire. And then he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. So there's that idea that faith is the key that unlocks the door to end this boy's suffering. So let's see what happens next. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So it's like the father knew the whole time, but until Jesus said it, it wasn't clear to him. At that moment, he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. And now we have a situation that's ready to experience healing. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. I love that last part. You don't usually see that, do you? Uh, it just it usually says, come out of him. But here it says, and never enter him again. That's like a super casting out of the spirit, right? Super exorcism. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the Muslim said, 
he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And then the other one, go over to chapter 6 real quick, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. My point in looking at that incident is to say the key to unlocking suffering in that boy's life was the faith of his father. And when that faith came in, it was like a key that unlocked the door and the suffering ended and everything was able to be resolved. Mark 6, 5, this is Jesus in his hometown and he could not do a mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. The parallel account in Matthew... You don't have to flip there, but Matthew 13, 58, this is the parallel to that. It says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so you see this in the Gospels, especially that faith is one of the, a uh, lack of faith is one of the reasons why suffering persists. And then I have reason number six, which is the least satisfying. But if we're going to be honest to scripture and life, there is an element of time and chance happening to all. And I get that from this scripture in Ecclesiastes 9, 10, and 11, which says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave or shield where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. So there is this sense in which you can be walking through the woods. You can even be praying while you're walking through the woods. And it just so happens that the tree you walk under has a branch and there's a wind or a squirrel or it just rotted and it just so happened. I mean, that branch is going to fall with or without you. And it just so happens that you were, and it hits you in the head. Now you want to curse the sky and, and be mad, but it's like, I don't think God made that branch fall. I mean, could God make a branch fall? Yes, absolutely. But it probably was just you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so I think there are a sense that, like he says, it's not because of your speed that you win always. The race is not always to the swift, right? And the battle's not always to the warriors. There's, there is this random aspect to the universe that we live in. We don't like that. We, we would rather understand how everything works, but... That's the way it is. There's another incident, too, where they came and asked Jesus, and they said to him, uh, what about this tower that fell on people? I don't know if you ever read this. This is Luke 13. They're asking him, what about the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So Jesus says, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. <laughs> so... What's so interesting about that is that Jesus is saying the tower didn't fall on these people because they were the worst sinners. That's what Jesus is saying here. You go back and read it yourself sometime if you're interested, because there's this other incident in the beginning of it with these uh, Galileans that ended up suffering. And Jesus says, you think they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, they weren't. But you need to repent. So stop worrying about bad things happening or random things happening to, to people and, and them suffering, you need to repent or else you're going to perish as well. Probably not in the same exact situation, but you, ultimately we're all going to perish, aren't we? This last one of time and chance, I, I think of it like this. There are uh, six and a half billion people in the world today. And 
I struggle with just regular chess. I don't know if you've ever played chess. Uh, Sean Kelly plays a little chess. I, it's a lot for my brain to handle a chessboard, right? Which is a fairly limited domain. And could you imagine if there were six and a half billion pieces on it instead of however many there are? That would be a lot more complicated. Now, let's add to it the fact that these pieces move themselves because they have free will. Now we're starting to get a picture of how complicated the situation is that God's working with, right? And sure, he's incredibly powerful. You know, the scripture says he's almighty. It says he's the most high and that he is knowledgeable and he's aware of everything that goes on. You can't climb up to the top of a mountain and be without God. He's going to be there. If you go to the bottom of the sea, he's there. If you go in a spaceship, he's there in outer space. But the situation is complicated, right? And there are situations, I think, where you can't just swoop down and save this one person or else this other series of events is going to happen, right? And everything is interrelated and intertwined. And if something bad happens over here, that's going to affect everybody. So let's look at the last part now, which is how to deal with suffering. How to deal with suffering. And I want to suggest that there are two bad ways to deal with suffering. Well, there's probably more than two, but here are two. One is to ask the question, why is God punishing me? And this we can call moralism. And the other is to say, there's no point. And we could call that cynicism. The moralist says, it, the moralist is the religious person. And I mean that in the negative sense of the word. Uh, the religious person says, you know, well... I just had this bad thing happen to me in my life, so obviously I'm not praying enough. If I was praying enough, then this bad thing would not have happened. Maybe I need to go to church more. Maybe I need, I'm doing something wrong, right? And there's this there's assumption that if I live a good life, then good things are going to happen to me. But you know what that is? That's not biblical. That's not Christian. You know what that is? That's karma. Karma is if you do good things, good things happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. But anyone that's, that you, you live long enough, you see that that's not an a ultimate principle, right? Because there are plenty of times where you, you meet somebody and they're just evil. You know, they're prideful. They know it and they flaunt it and everything's going well for them. You know, and, and sometimes they die a wealthy old man with a good woman at his side. And he was wicked his whole life, or vice versa, if it was the woman that was wicked. I don't want to be equal <laughs> to both genders, <laughs> right? Sometimes that happens. And sometimes really good people, they suffer and they suffer and they suffer and they die, right? Look at Jeremiah in the Bible. I don't think you can say that there's a definitive principle like, if I do something good, then that's, that's not Christianity. That's, that's a different faith. And then the other thing is cynicism. And that's like, life's a crapshoot stuff happens, there's no God, and if there is a God, he's incompetent or uninterested, so whatever, right? That's the cynic. If God allows this kind of evil and suffering, I don't want to have anything to do with him. So these are, what I would suggest, are two bad ways of dealing with suffering when you're going through it. I don't think you should say to yourself, how, how do I get in control? It, it actually, both of these relate to control, if you really think about it. At a deeper level, they're both pat answers that people want to say, oh, I did something wrong, so that's why this bad thing happened. Or nothing matters anyhow. I always know it. And now 
I've got confirmation, right? Those are both pat approaches to this kind of thing. And the, and the problem is they're both trying to take control of the situation. That's the cynic saying, I can live however I want since God isn't going to do anything. I'm in control of my life. That's what the cynic is doing here. And the moralist is saying, if I live in a good way, if I live in a righteous way, if I do all the right things, God has to bless me. He has to. He has no choice. I did the right thing. I woke up and prayed and read my Bible this morning. He has to bless me. He doesn't have any choice. That's trying to control God. Both of those are kind of like opposites, but then there's a middle position. Here's a middle position, and I know you're not going to like it, but I'm going to tell you anyhow because I feel like it's the best horse in the race. And maybe you have a better one, but we could talk if I leave any time at the end here. (laughs) Um, And that is to be okay with uncertainty. <laughs> to be okay not knowing why. To be, to be able to say, God, I know it's got to be really difficult running a, a universe with like six and a half billion people and counting so far, and they're all interrelated, and I don't really know how you run things. All I know is that I'm supposed to live this way because I love you, not because I'm trying to control you. And Sometimes bad things happen and sometimes good things happen, but I'm gonna, I want to be like Job, the hero, who says, even though I've lost everything, he, do, he doesn't say, God owes it to me because I'm righteous. He doesn't say that. What does Job say when he loses it all? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. He's, he's like, look, everything I had has been given to me. It's all grace, right? So, he, he doesn't say, God, you owe it to me. Not just that you can't wrestle with the issue. I think you can wrestle with the issue. But in the end, God does not owe us an explanation. He does not say, I'm going to make the, a universe where everything is going to be easy to understand or explainable, right? Uh, and, and I think a lot of times, you know, I, I gave you six reasons, right? So I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on these different reasons. I think if you have sin in your life, uh, yeah. Repent. That's what Jesus says. Repent or you'll likewise perish, right? Or else you, it might be a judgment of God. We, you don't know. Uh, it could be the devil or demons, right? So what do you have to do in that situation? Well, you need to take authority in the name of Jesus and, and, and through prayer as well. Uh, if suffering's for your good, then you better learn how to be grateful as you go through suffering of what you do have. And then when you get out of it, don't just forget what it was like, right? That's so easy for us to do. And you need to build your faith. And sometimes it's just time and chance, so you can't stress about exactly why the fastest guy didn't win the race. What was Satan's accusation against God in the, in the garden? It, what, what was it? it was, uh, he doesn't want you to become like God's knowing good and evil. Right? That was Satan's accusation to the people, accusation to God. And then Satan's accusation to God against Job was, he only serves you for what you give him. There's something interesting there. When Satan accuses God, the people believe him. The people say, yeah, he is holding me back. What the heck? You know, I thought this garden was pretty nice until I realized that he's just trying to keep me from the knowledge of good and evil. Right? (laughs) So we just believe Satan's accusation right away about God. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, yeah, he's got his own agenda. He doesn't really have me at heart. But then when Satan goes and he accuses Job, God says, I don't think so. Do what you're going to do, but I don't think it's going to work. God doesn't buy Satan's accusation when he accuses us. Now, who's more trustworthy, us or God? God, right? So I think we need to recognize 
and trust that God actually knows what he's doing and that he's trustworthy, right? And you look at Abraham, right? Abraham's greatest test. Are you serving God for God or for what God gives you? A son after all these years. Go sacrifice him, Abraham, on Mount Moriah. Go sacrifice this, your son, your only son, whom you love. And Abraham says, okay. And of course, God stops it from happening. So if you know you, why you have suffering, then you won't become the kind of person that suffering can make you be. Sometimes you find deep wisdom in strange places. This was from something Kim Walker Smith said, from the singer from Jesus Culture. She said, I had some different challenges that I walked through in my childhood. When I formed my relationship with God and found out how big and how powerful He is, I suddenly could not fully understand, why did all the bad things happen? God, in all His power, He's so big, He's so strong, He could have done something to stop it, right? And going and saying, but God, why did all the bad things happen? I've gone and talked to lots of people over the years when I start talking about this, people who have gone through trauma or loss and different things, and they have that same question burning inside of them. Why? The why? And to be quite honest, I didn't really hear it talked about a lot in church or anywhere because I don't know if people just didn't have a great answer. But I realized at some point that this is what was happening. I could only get so close to God. I was so hungry for Him, but because my heart I was living with this offense in my heart, this offense that he didn't look how I wanted him to look. He didn't show up how I wanted him to show up. He didn't even show up when I wanted him to show up. And I just couldn't understand. I still had the question burning, why did all the bad things happen? Suddenly, when this revelation hit me, I realized that this thing, this offense, was standing between me and him and was preventing me from getting closer to him. It's like I hit this breaking point where I was so desperate to be closer in his presence that I just hit this moment of breaking down and said, God, I want you more than I want the answers. And it took me a long time to get there. And it was a fight. And I'm really honest with all of you today that it is still something I do every day. Every day I still say, God, I want you more than I want the answers. Even though I don't understand, he and I may have some long conversations when I get to the kingdom of heaven. But right now, I cannot have any offense in my heart. I cannot afford to carry anything in my heart that would stand in between me and his presence. I had to make that sacrifice, to lay it down, to put it aside, to say, God, my hunger for you far outweighs my hunger for understanding or for answers or to have it all perfectly clear in my head. That's Job. That's Abraham. That's every great person who walked with God throughout all of Scripture. They never get the full explanation. Maybe after the fact, right? Joseph gets it after the fact, right? I mean, he had these crazy dreams as a kid, and then he just suffered for like decades, <laughs> horribly and he never gets the answer and then he finally gets out of it he's like oh <laughs> right now i'm the second most powerful person in the entire empire not so bad right but like getting that all worked out so that like he had to get to potiphar's but like if he didn't get to jail so like how's he gonna get to jail you know and potiphar's wife and like and god's not violating anyone's free will either so he did it and so with this, this little statement here, I think, just hit me like a ton of bricks, where she said, God, I want you more than I want the answers. And in the end, that's what I think, if we're going to have any peace in our hearts, when we're going through suffering, that's where we have to get to, where we say, God, I don't understand, 
but I want you, I need you. Because suffering can, can bring us to God or it can push us away from God. But let's end on some good news. What do you say? Christianity might not have every explanation to every bad thing that happens, but we do offer a solution to the problem of evil, and it comes in two stages. One is the cross, and the other is the kingdom. And so what does the cross tell us? The cross tells us that God is doing something about evil, right? And that God himself suffered when his only begotten son was tortured and hung on that tree. And that that moment that God orchestrated a way for salvation to come about so that we wouldn't be held under the old system of Adam and Eve and sin passed down from generation to generation that you can break free from it in Christ, right? I mean, that's some good news from the cross, but that doesn't solve everything, right? Then you have the kingdom. Look, when Jesus comes back, everything wrong with the world is going to be made right. That is the hope we look forward to. The time when God heals our world, resurrects our bodies. And look, if you have a resurrected body and you're in the woods and a branch hits you on the head, so what? You're immortal. Like, you can live, you know, it's just not that big a deal. If you have an immortal body, you can handle all kinds, I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you have it, it says incorruptible and it says immortal, right? It says both of those, right? So like, even if disease still existed in the world, you would have a souped up immune system to be able to handle it. You know what I mean? That's the incorruptible part. And then immortal means that you wouldn't be able to die. So God is going to fix the whole thing. And Christianity offers this solution. But like, back to the cynic, what's the cynic say? There's no purpose, tough luck. Stuff happens, buck up, keep a stiff upper lip, right? Or you have some of the Eastern perspectives that say, oh, it's just an illusion, you know, suffering and pain is not, I mean, you're just too attached. You need to work on yourself a little bit here. I, I, don't, I don't find either of those satisfying. I don't, I don't find the atheist position of saying, well, it's just, it's just random chance and survival of the fittest or whatever like i don't find that satisfying to my soul and i also don't find like the the eastern pr perspective to say well it's all an illusion and i have to detach myself i don't find that satisfying either now i might struggle as a believer in god in this age but i have a hope that he is actually going to solve the problem of evil and eliminate it piece by piece whatever kind of evil is out there he's going to deal with. And look, if you live forever, looking back, let's, let's say you're a million years in to the kingdom of God, right? You're a million years into the kingdom of God, and let's say we all get to the kingdom, and we all find each other in a million years, and we sit down. We're like, remember that time where it was like, in the basement as a classroom, and it was like kind of weird. Um, and, uh, and then, and then I'm like, yeah, yeah, um, that's, when, uh, that's when Rose's brother was going through that thing, and, and Sarah Jane had this, not a car accident, what did you have? Something happened with your car today, this is my head, oh, and Leah, yeah, or your car, and Leah had a cold, and like, uh, Dan Walsh still got a broken leg, but he seems all right, you know, and like, and, and, and we kind of like remind ourselves of our various calamities, like, right, you know, we have stuff that we go through, whether, and Frank, you know, he's like, oh, you know, that thing with my sister, yeah, oh, yeah, that was, that was a difficult, and you're a million years in, and you look back on it, what kind of perspective would you have? You'd be like, 
you, you, you'd be, you'd, I'm just assuming you did remember it, you'd be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, even if, it, even if you had gone through years of torture, I mean, that's like the worst kind of suffering, right? Years of torture. A million years into the kingdom, you'd be like, I only live like 50 years in the, tri in the trial version of this thing, right? <laughs> like, if you divide any number by infinity, the answer is still zero, you know? So like, if you, if you want to compare this life to the life of the age to come, like, it just so outweighs everything that, like, whatever we go through, like, yeah, it's real, it's serious, God's here with us, and we, and we do suffer. But you know what? God has this thing called eternal life that's going to make it all worthwhile in the end. So, if we ask somebody, well, why is there evil? Because God hasn't brought it to an end yet. Second Peter 3.9, God says that he's uh, patient, not wanting any to perish but for all to come to repentance right so he delays and he delays and he delays the coming so that more people will come to repentance god wants more people right and i i don't know when when that time is going to end but those are some thoughts on the problem of evil for your consideration any like burning thoughts <laughs> we have two hand raisers just uh, a couple just really quick kind of responses to the problem of evil. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, philosopher Elvin Plantinga. He has some really good stuff on this topic. And one of the arguments that he made to, count, to respond to the, the claim that if God is good and evil exists, therefore there can be no God, he responded to that by saying the assumption that a perfectly good God would not allow any evil is actually not logical. Uh, that actually a good God would allow evil. And the way that he explained that is that there are, there are some goods by their na there are some forms of good that by their nature could not exist without at least some evil. For example, courage is good, but you could, ne you could never experience courage if you never had anything to be afraid of. Compassion is good, but you could never experience compassion if there, there's n n not anybody no in need that needed compassion. Uh, forgiveness is good, but you could never experience forgiveness if there was no, never anything to forgive. So there's a lot of things that that everyone agrees are are really good things, but they they could these these goods could not exist without at least some evil. So he argues that a good God is not one who would never allow any evil, but rather he would allow the uh, minimal required amount of evil necessary to bring about the greatest amount of good. In other words, the good that that is able to be uh, to exist because of evil is outweighs the evil. And an analogy he made that's really good is uh, a good surgeon is not a surgeon that never does any harm. Rather, a good surgeon does the minimal amount of harm necessary to produce the greatest good. So when a surgeon cuts you open, he, he's doing harm to your body. He's, he's, uh, he's doing harm to your skin, but it's producing a greater good. So that harm is necessary. He argues that out of all possible universes, we live in, the, in a universe with a minimal amount of evil that is necessary to produce the greatest amount of good. Because as much evil as there is, there could be, there could be way more evil. But God, is, God puts a limit on evil. He says, I'm going to allow this much evil, and it's just enough to produce the greatest amount of good. Uh, so I thought that was like a really good argument. Oh yeah, also uh, Ravi Zacharias, who I'm sure you know, he, uh, he also responded to the, to the argument this way. When somebody said... Uh, how could a, how could a good God 
how could God exist when there's so much evil in the world? He said, you acknowledge that there is evil in the world. If you acknowledge that there is evil, you acknowledge that there is such a thing as evil. If you acknowledge that there is such a thing as evil, you acknowledge that there's such a thing as good. If you acknowledge that there is such a thing as good and evil, you acknowledge that there must be a moral law on which to judge what is good and what is evil. If you acknowledge that there's a moral law, you acknowledge that there must be a moral law giver. So if you acknowledge that there's a moral law giver, you acknowledge the existence of God. So, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> he basically turned it around and said, the fact that you even asked the question, how can there be a God if there's so much evil, shows that you acknowledge a moral law. And that actually points to the existence of God rather than away from it. Whereas if God did not exist, who's to say what is good or what is evil? Everything would just be subjective, just there'd be no objective moral law. So, you know, there would be no evil. Everything would just be a matter of opinion. So that, that was an interesting argument as well. Yeah. yeah. Mine was, uh, I was actually listening to this thing on chess today, surprisingly, <laughs> but uh, there was a number that the guy threw out and I couldn't find anything written online by him, but this guy, I found something that was kind of similar, but it was the statement of how many moves are available in chess and, you know, comparing it to the moving parts within the universe. And it's, uh, I'm just going to read what this guy put down, which is Claude Chan estimated that there are around 10 to the 43rd power possible positions in chess the database needed to store this outcome of all these so the earth contained only about 10 to the 50 atoms so even if you could build a memory cell out of just 10 million atoms you would still need a computer the size of the earth just to store all the positions on a chessboard and this is just the chessboard and uh so this i'm not sure about but this i thought was pretty cool which is but such a huge computer brings bigger problems. The Earth's diameter, 12,800 kilometers, and light takes about 43 milliseconds to cross that distance. That means that if a clock cycle lasts longer than 43 milliseconds, then not only do you have a horrible clock skew, but different parts of your computer aren't even on the same clock cycle. Avoiding this limits your clock speed to about 23.5 hertz, not gigahertz or megahertz, just hertz. Even if you could completely evaluate a position in a single clock cycle, that means your computer would take about 4.3 times 10 to the 41 seconds to complete its task. That means 1.4 times 10 to the 34 years. That's 14 million billion 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 years to figure out, to figure out a chess move <laughs> if you were to build a computer. You're consider all the options. And that's right. for a 32 position chessboard. <laughs> out of 6.5 billion people. It gives me a better appreciation of what God does daily with all of our moving parts and pieces. Anybody else? Like I said in the beginning, I don't have this whole thing completely figured out. You know, these are some provisional thoughts. You could easily go four hours, five, six hours, and not cover everything that could be said. There are different theological worldviews. For example, the open theist position has one way of dealing with the problem of evil. Gregory Boyd has a book on spiritual warfare where he really goes into depth with that. Then you have the Molinism position of William Lane Craig, where he talks about possible worlds and kind of like what Matt was saying as far as like this world is the best possible world because it has a, the right amount of evil to bring about the most amount of conversions where people put their trust in God and then get saved. 
because um, if if no bad things ever happen, then people never ask the question, well, what's what about my life? What should I do? And that sort of thing. So let me just close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Thank you for the light that you have given us on this subject. We ask that you would give us the heart to trust in you so that when we do face suffering, we run to you in our pain, just like in the Psalms, how they ran to you in those times of lament. And we thank you for how you work with us in our heart and how you deliver us so often from so many things that we know about and so many more that we don't even know about. Uh, And we just thank you and praise you tonight and ask for your help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I realize I was only able to make provisional comments on this important and deep subject. May I recommend to you two episodes from Dale Tuggy's podcast called Trinities, where he addresses this subject with Dr. Trent Doherty, podcast episodes 88 and 89, called Dr. Trent Doherty on the Problem of Evil and... Dr. Trent Doherty on the problem of animal pain, respectively. So check that out for a little more in-depth thinking on this subject. Also, I wanted to let you know that I've just released my first ebook on the habits of a disciple, where I go through six main practices of Christianity, like scripture reading and prayer and fasting and that sort of thing. And you can get that book if you subscribe to the Restitutio email list. So if you're interested in that, visit restitutio.org and you can find the offer right there. Subscribe to the email list and we'll send it right to you via email. And you can read that as a PDF on your PC or as an actual ebook on your iPhone or Android, what's called an EPUB, or I have a version of it that's optimized for the Amazon Kindle. So whatever your reader is, Nook, Kindle, phone, tablet, PC, this book should work on there. And please let me know what you think about the book, suggestions for future projects, and certainly if you have any technical difficulties, because like I said, this is my first one of these kind of digital format publications. Well, on a recent Offscript episode, I just wanted to mention Offscript episode 17, Is Jesus the Only Way to God? That we got three very significant comments, one from Miranda, one from Robin Todd, and one from Brian. And they're too long for me to read out here, but I encourage you to go check out what these folks are saying about this important subject, which is, what about those who never got to hear the gospel message? How are they saved? And also, is Christianity the only way to God? And I also wanted to say that in reference to Brian's comment, I would want to research that subject a little bit more. He asked about the case of present-day Orthodox Jews who have never heard a cogent presentation about Jesus and have only their only exposure to Christianity is historical Christian sins like the Inquisition and the Crusades and persecution. And so... His question is, well, what about modern-day faithful Jews who are still keeping the covenant of the ancestors but have not yet heard any kind of presentation of Jesus apart from the Trinity and apart from the sorts of horrible things that have happened in the past done in the name of Christ? And quite honestly, Brian, this is something that I have to think about more. I'm sorry I don't have a satisfying answer. I certainly don't know everything. And I think you're right that the answer lies somewhere in Romans 9 to 11, 
So if anybody else wants to jump on that and discuss with Brian, go to restitutio.org and check out Offscript episode 17. You can just click on the podcast menu at the top and then scroll down to Offscript 17, Is Jesus the Only Way to God, December 4th, 2016. Click on that and leave your comments. And I think this is definitely a subject that deserves further research and attention. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode, and I hope you all have an awesome holiday season. We'll be back on Sunday with an episode dealing with another objection to Christianity. Stay tuned for Sunday where we have our next episode out. If you haven't already, please give us a review in iTunes, and please share this episode. If it is something that you found helpful or any of our other episodes, please share it on social media so other people can find this podcast and hopefully this will help them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.